0: Here we are again in the chronicles of Paul and Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we've been going and walking through these two letters uh, for the past, well, since April. We've been looking at this life of Timothy as a young pastor and Paul leading his young son in the ministry. And if I could tag this series, um, it would be something to the effect of the enduring church. That's what we've seen so far in the life of Timothy and his ministry, that the Christian life is one that is a tall and, and difficult endeavor, but leading the church is a tall, difficult endeavor. We've seen the, the antidote and defense towards false teachings, and we've also seen what, what is needed to weather the life, weather the storms of life, Series. And all those things that we've walked through for the last three months, all of which are foundations and pillars for the church, especially a young church, a church still in its, in its infancy stages. And if you wonder, well wh- why are we going through first and second, Timothy? Well, recently we just installed new officers. Our church is five years old, and there are things that we need to know, things that we need for our longevity for our sustainability, for the preservation of life of Hope Presbyterian Church. And this week we come to yet another distant reality is to come, or so it would seem. And so I would ask you to meet me in Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and hear these words from Paul to Timothy. But understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without sorrow, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of this but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. I want to preach for the next few moments. Thought. In These Last Days. I want to tag the title of this sermon, In These Last Days. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and Lord, we thank you for your spirit. And as with that spirit we ask that you would be in these next ones. That the preaching of your words would fall on fresh soil, that hearts would be stirred, that lives would be changed, but that you would be glorified the most. I ask that you would help me to speak the truth in nothing but the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Looking. Under the hood of 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 9, one could very well come away feeling discouraged or confused or or even questioning of redemptive history, even questioning what God may have in store for your own life. The opening statement of our text caught me by surprise, as I'm sure it caught many of you. The words of verse 1 like a kind of danger up ahead or buyer beware sign. But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Can you imagine Paul attempting to write these final words to young Timothy? Sweat dripping from his face, physically and mentally exhausted from years of chains and beatings on the brink of death due to his own of perilous difficulty. Isolated and lonely as he urgently dips his pen in ink, hand shaking, eyes straining as he writes as quickly and precisely as he can, giving his most precious of wisdom to young Timothy. Knowing his life and his discourse with Timothy is ending. These are the final two chapters of Paul's ministry and his life. You would Paul would give Timothy words of encouragement, words of uplifting. But no, he chooses instead to write about the end of the world and what that would entail leading up to it. Oh, but those words, they don't mean much to you. Are you young and healthy Americans? No, life has just gotten started for many of you. You have dreams of prosperity in times ahead. For some of you, this moment in time are, are your golden years, years you have dreamt since your kids have less, left your nets. and you don't have time to think about the end. And I would ask that Timothy was reading this portion of the letter and started thinking similar ideas. Timothy was young, and his moment in history had just begun, and here is Paul Talking about the last days. The question that has to be answered from the text is why do we need to understand things about the end right now? What is Paul even referring to when he talks about these last days? But more than that, Paul's own stylistic writing of verse 1 feels rushed. It, it, you, you can sense and feel the, the hurriedness of Paul's words. Paul writes this initial clause, but understand this, in the present active imperative, which means, brother, I need you to pick up what I'm putting down quick, fast, and in a hurry. There is something you got to know. The second half of verse one sets the stage for the rest of our time, and what was true for Timothy is still the case for you and me today. Church, it doesn't get any clearer or sobering for what life will be like for the Christian. There will come times of difficulty. When I was little, I had heard once that life is about storms. You are either in a storm, leaving a storm, or about to be in a storm. And there are many of you here who fit one of those scenarios. You came to church this morning looking for refuge, needing to hear that God is on your side. Maybe you're here this morning and you need the doctor of all doctors to heal storm the wounds the storms have brought to your life. But I know there is someone here who, because of a storm, found themselves back in church because you remembered how God had got you through the last one. And even though out there is dark, and it's wet, and it's raining, you knew of a place that was dry and warm and full of light. Your soul needed oxygen, and God carried you here. Is there anybody here that knows what I'm talking about? Can someone lift this? Because they know what God has done for them. Friends, this text is tailored to teach you and I that when life becomes bumpy and turbulent when the world gets chaotic when evil is showing its face you can trust that help is on the way that's good news because of the the redemptive the glorious and the suffering work of Jesus evil in this world should not be surprising it shall not be welcome in your life and evil will never win that's it what God is trying to communicate to us in these next few moments is just that, that these last days will be hard. But do not worry, because you do have a God who is prepared for such days. So what is the reader to make of these? Scholars have spilled much ink debating and writing and lecturing on this theologically loaded phrase Paul uses here in verse 1 and in other places in his writing. In the last days. Paul is referencing the already and not yet reality of God's kingdom. That is to say, what is waiting for the Christian in the future has made itself known in the here and now, but not in the fullest sense. I'm going somewhere, stick with me. And before you and I get to that promised future, you will inevitably experience days on your way. On the one end of the timeline, because of the saving work of Jesus on the cross, God's kingdom has broken into the world and into your life. And now is a present and real force that Christians experience right now. And what Jesus did over 2,000 years ago set into motion a redemptive locomotive that cannot be stopped. The historical, the glorious event of Jesus dying on a cross on top of Golgotha closed one error, and when he got up out the mouth of the grave with death defeated, he ushered in a new one, a new era in which the world had never known. An era you and I and those before us have been experiencing since that day on Calvary Hill. An era where it only took one final death to make your life right again. An, an era where the unjust are made just. Where love was poured out for the guilty. Where justification is given and not earned. Bought by his body and not yours. This new is called the kingdom of life. The kingdom of God. It is a time where the poor are made rich, where the downcast are lifted, where sadness is turned into joy, broken are healed. And friends, when Jesus died and rose, he let loose a kingdom into the world. And when you rest your life on this man, that kingdom is yours. That life is yours. That reality becomes present. All that he has to offer is yours. That's what he did. He did, it for you. he did it for me, but it gets better. See, with Jesus, it always gets better. What Jesus did back then points to something up ahead, too. See, God's kingdom and his grace is good now, but when it is time for him to come back, it gets even better. Oh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Even now, as you sit in these pews, there is something inside of you that yearns for that day. When perfection will be on day, in all its glory. When tears will be no more. A day where you will no longer have to see loved ones lower down into the earth because of death. Where joy will replace your pain. Where your thirst for that place that Jesus left to go prepare for the redeemed who shall call it home forever. It is the place where Martin Luther King looked out and saw the mountaintop when his back was up in the wall. It is the place he preached about right before he was murdered. It is that place those old saints would sing as they marched into church every Sunday, week in and week out, after spending all week in the fields or on or, or, or segregated buses or as they sat in segregated schools. Their souls longed for what was up there while their bodies suffered down here. They knew existentially this was not their home, but God had given them a taste of it by his spirit. And I figured, I figured when I got to this point in my sermon, I would need some help. I I, I figured I would be preaching to myself. And maybe I'm the one that needs to hear these words, but just in case, there are a few of you who need to hear something good. Maybe the life of James Pennington will help you feel the force of these words. Mr. Pennington, a freed blacksmith of the early 19th century, watched up close and personal. His former master whip his father up to 20 lashes to the back. There, young Pennington was helpless, hopeless as he witnessed a man and a system that emboldened those who did not look like him brutalized his own father all in the name of God and lash after lash James spectated with anger with despair with longings for freedom and it was in those very moments that James had decided to no longer be a slave to any other man again. In his own words, although it was sometime after this event before I took the decisive step, yet in my mind and in my spirit, I was never a slave after it. God help me, I'm trying to say something. This is a picture of a man who has one foot in this world while his other is in another. God had freed his mind his soul from tyranny, even though his body was not there yet. In other words, he could take comfort knowing his soul was liberated from the evils of the earth in the present while looking ahead to a day where his whole self freed. Friends, I don't know how else to paint it, but this is a kind of window into the already and not yet reality of the kingdom. God, in Christ has accomplished salvation for you in the present and has secured eternity for you in the future. And as the church inches closer and closer to what lies ahead, the world around you will become increasingly hostile because it knows that when Jesus comes and he's coming soon, all things will be rewritten. All pain will be gone. All you thought will be no more. Life will be as you not know it, but as you want it. Therefore, what we can take away from verse 1 is that you can walk with awareness and not fear. Because we know the story ends. The present cannot shake us. Paul goes on to describe what this world will be like in these last days here in verses 2 to 5. Not that you would fear for the rest of your life, but rather that you would be vigilant and watchful over your life. This detailed list of the kind of evil that you will find at any given moment is for your action. It's not for your harm. Rather than being unprepared or caught off guard or swept away by the real and present evil forces in the world, Paul is giving Timothy a cheat sheet, a kind of blueprint to the enemy's game plan against you. Do not be mistaken here, though. This, there is a powerful one who exists in this world, and he calls this place his, and he has devised his own kind of strategy to make sure you don't get to where you're going. I'll try that again. Satan has conquered the some has conquered some, so that they won't make it home. I'm just preaching what the text says. There it is, starting in verse 2. For people will be lovers of self. I could stop right there. People will be lovers of self. Your number one obstacle to the kingdom of God is those who only love themselves. Every other kind of evil that derives from the human being can find its origins in the love of self. Lovers of self become lovers of money. They become swelled up with pride. They become folks who walk around with arrogant superiority complexes. They rise abusive and violent speech towards God and their neighbor. They become disrespectful and indifferent towards their parents. They develop hearts of ungratefulness and live lives that are distasteful their hearts turn cold and anemic. Relationships become broken, and they're unwilling to repent and become re- uh, reconciled. Their mouths are full of vicious and words. Evil has made them act more like animals than human. They have no desire to love and do good. And their sole goal in life is to use as political and societal and economic gain, no matter the cost. All they can think about is what's in it for them, filled with conceit. And those who love rather than God become the person described in verses 2 to 4. They are the pawns in Satan's service, ready to knock you out of the game. But that is not, that's not all. See, some of them are slick. Some of them are real cool. Some of them will even try to fool you and mesmerize you by walking and talking like a Christian. But deep down, their power, their hearts deny his power. This, friends, is the world of the in-between. This is what it's like giving, living in the gap that spans from the already to the not yet. And in it, you will come up against people, institutions bent on making your days ahead difficult. Have you watched the news recently? Have you scrolled through Instagram or Twitter lately? If you have a pulse, then you know firsthand that Paul's words could not be truer. At some point in life, each of us have been acquainted with people who have treated you unfairly, who have named called you or constantly disregarded your needs over theirs. They have exploited your emotions, your money, your time for their own gain. Lovers of self do do not know how to love others, let alone God. There are kids dying in the streets. There are drugs rampant in our neighborhoods. There are folks who don't care about the other. Evil is real. And much of it, and some of it, has come to your own doorstep. And what does Paul tell us to do? Avoid such people. Paul is urgently reminding you and I that the company you keep matters, that these kinds of people and the kinds of things that you open yourself up to matter. Therefore, God must find themselves allergic towards such people, people who have no regard for human dignity but exist to rob others of theirs, whose lives are subjected on breaking people down with their tongue, gossiping and never seeming to tell the truth, always trying to get you to do something you do not want to do. And you know what's crazy? The craziest thing of it all is that these folks, these things, always seem to find us when we are at our most vulnerable. Well, yeah, you've had a long week. You had yet another fight with your spouse or your child. The shame of your past seems to be talking to you louder than normal. The storm you have been walking through has gotten you to your end. You are sleep deprived because your child sleep at night. And here they come, smiles on their faces, pleasures in their hands, empty promises in their mouths, ready to share with you about the latest religious or spiritual experience that would make you feel all the better. And sometimes you won't know them because they're on your screen late at night they talk to you through YouTube. You run into them on Facebook. Like that, they have entered your home trying to capture you. This is what Paul is getting at here in verses 6 and 7. Evil men, with their nice words and false teachings, were preying on women in the church, struggling with their former lives, riddled with shame and guilt, clinging for antidotes, but can never find one because they were looking in the wrong place. Slaves who want to be truths while the truth in front of them. It's when you're not looking. It's when you're down and out. That's when Satan mobilizes against you. When you think you are hanging on by a thread, he's just waiting for you to come on over to him. The stress has become too much. Life is crumbling. Life seems to be weighing you down. You don't know if you can make rent. You don't, you, you don't know what's next in your marriage. You, you, you think the grass is greener with him or her. And the grass keeps becoming your present. And if that's you this morning, then God wants you to know that he ain't done with you. He has not forgotten about you. And, and do not believe in the lies of those who say he isn't, who say that God doesn't really care about your circumstance, that God is just a myth. But guess what? Even the demons must confess that Jesus is Lord. Satan himself must confess when God intervenes. And when you call on the name of God to speak power and life into your situation, into your difficult moments, into your darkness, evil has no choice to run away. But since I am preaching to myself, I'll hurry back to my seat because I'm trying to get some of you to talk back to me. But just in case, you may still be wondering if God really can overcome evil. Just ask Moses what God did to the men working for Pharaoh that opposed him in Egypt. Jonas and Jambres were their government names. And the Bible has them on record trying to use magic to defeat God. So what does God do? He tells Aaron and Moses that if Pharaoh don't let my people go, I'm gonna to have to lay hands on him personally. Jonas and Jambres tried to show up God, but it was God's power that swallowed up so-called power. And Pharaoh tried to resist, but he was no match. And only God can use the waters of the sea as both salvation for his own people and judgment for our enemies. His people walked to safety while their enemies became no more. But church, I'm done now. But all I'm trying to say is that there is no need for you to be worried. You don't have anything to be afraid of. Because according to verse 9, God always. Moses knew victory as the great I am. Abraham knew victory as the promised seed. Joshua knew victory as the walls came tumbling down. And Esther knew victory as an edict that saved her people from genocide. The psalmist knew victory as a lamb and a lion. Solomon knew victory as all wisdom and all power. Isaiah knew victory as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Ezekiel knew victory as a spinning of light that could be everywhere at all times. Jeremiah knew victory even though no one would listen. The minor prophets knew victory as justice rolling down through a messenger from God. I'm not done, but the disciples, Paul, Timothy, you and I know victory as a man named Jesus. The self-proclaimed champion of God, the ruler of things, the name that reigns over every other name. And victory put on flesh and he walked among us. Victory came down and he talked with us. He cried with us. He healed us. Then victory, hung high. I said he hung high on a cross for you and I. He took our evil and the world's evil, and he nailed them to his hands. Then he nailed them to his feet. And three days later, he got up victoriously. Evil is no match. Evil is no match for a king like Jesus. And if you ever wonder if evil will get to you, the name of God, the power of God is on your side. Now, Evil. Cannot win. Jesus always wins. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are victorious. And we thank you. It may not seem like we have won, it may not feel like you will win. But I know, because of Jesus, I've already won, amen.